2: Creating its own cryptocurrency, one of the things that Facebook has done here is manage to avoid having to adhere to traditional financial regulations.
1: If Libra takes off and becomes very popular, it would be a very, very different world. It's going to be a world where the, the financial controls of one country are not the final word and where money is flowing.
2: It would effectively remove control of monetary policy away from central banks.
1: After what we've seen with the network data that is social media and social media disinformation, we're going to move into a world where you can see the same sort of malicious activity, but in the realm of financial transactions. When Libra is launched, it's going to be something between Y2K and worse than the global financial crisis.
2: So you've got this beautiful irony of this sort of libertarian dream of a cryptocurrency, which is in reality largely controlled by a communist controlled state.
0: Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Catherine Manstead, and this is the podcast that looks at national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by Policyforum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. Now, in this episode, we're delving into financial technology, fintech and national security. I'm with two people, uh, Chris Zapone, the digital foreign editor at The Age and Sydney Morning Herald, who's done some pretty groundbreaking reporting on the interplay between tech, politics, economics and ideology. I'm also joined by Elise Thomas, a freelance journalist and also a researcher with the Australian Strategic Policy Institute's International Cyber Policy Centre, who also boasts a rather impressive collection of bylines ranging from foreign policy to wired. Uh, Chris and Elise, welcome to the National Security Podcast. Great to be here. Thanks very much, Catherine. Now, it seems we're in something of a fintech boom of late. So, KPMG estimates that over a hundred and uh, $111 billion is invested in the sector. China is exploding in terms of uh, the adherence to mobile payments. Around $17 trillion a year passes through digital payment systems in China. And even in Australia, we've now got a cabinet minister um, in our new parliament whose ministerial responsibilities include fintech. Now, Just last month, Facebook's joined the fintech party. Uh, They announced that they'll have a new digital currency, Libra, which Facebook says it wants to become a globally recognised form of legal tender by as early as next year. Elise, what do you make of this fintech trend and in particular,
2: Facebook's recent announcement that it wants to join the party? Um, I think it's a really fascinating move by Facebook um, to launch its own cryptocurrency. I think... It's it's sort of difficult to understand at this stage because we have so few details exactly what Facebook's play is here. It's not about um, – there's been a lot of discussion from Facebook, a lot of marketing spin, I would say, from Facebook about how it's about banking the unbanked, um, who are the sort of the populations across the world who don't have access to traditional financial services. I don't think there's any particular reason – to think that this is that, that is actually their motivation um, because the, the creation of a cryptocurrency um, and the creation of the, the Calibra digital wallet doesn't actually solve any of the problems, or any of the reasons that people are unbanked to begin with. I also don't think there's a. There's also been some discussion about how this is sort of Facebook going by the WeChat playbook, which is sort of the the you know the the ways in which the the Chinese social media app WeChat sort of brings in payments and sort of um, integrates across many different kinds of financial and non-financial services in China. Um, I think that's part of it, but it's not all of it because WeChat obviously has not created its own currency. That's a really significant difference. But I mean, WeChat it's it's
0: called uh, the digital Swiss army knife in China. And the Chinese consumers are way more digital currency savvy and mobile payment savvy than the American consumers are. I mean, America is still in the age of checks um, and kind of physical money. Is, is part of it that Facebook is trying to drag uh,
2: maybe America and other parts of the world into the 21st century? I don't think Facebook has any sort of altruistic motivations about bringing Americans forward into the age of light and progress. I think Facebook, by creating its own cryptocurrency, one of the things that Facebook has done here is managed to avoid having to adhere to traditional financial regulations. So if Uh, Facebook wanted to go into financial services using a traditional currency, they would have to adhere to the same regulations as all of the other big financial players. And obviously, they would have a disadvantage in that the big financial players already have those licenses, they already have those institutions set up. Um, By creating Libra, Facebook has been able to avoid that level of regulation, but it may end up backfiring if they get whacked in the face with a whole new um, suite of legislation from across the world, which seems to be the, the the reaction. So you made the good point there that Facebook's possibly not altruistic in all of this. Chris,
0: you've looked and done a lot of groundbreaking reporting on one of Facebook's other inventions before, uh, the Facebook social media system, which was created under the, the altruistic banner of connecting the world, but played a pretty... Prominent role uh, in spreading disinformation and dissent in the 2016 U.S. election, among other places, is this just another example of Facebook jumping in without thinking about the consequences?
1: Unfortunately, it looks like it it could very well be, in in part because I think the ethos at Facebook is to is to create new things and to create this new technology. They didn't they didn't really consider the political uh, ramifications of Facebook, social media, and the ability for Foreign countries to influence each other, um, and it looks like that might be similar with this. I mean, it, it, when you get into Silicon Valley, it's all about the elegance of the engineering code, and it's a long been an aspiration for a lot of people in the, the, the Silicon sort of Silicon Valley ideology to to create something that that supplants traditional banking and central banks. So when designing something like Libra, it's probably designed on a, on a nice whiteboard, but not at all on a sort of international geopolitical chessboard. So for instance, when you look at the, the Libra white paper, it doesn't, really, it doesn't mention sanctions at all. So it's not clear how they're going to handle that and if this is going to be something that they try to address after the fact.
0: Like, so when you're talking about sanctions, you're not talking about sanctions against Libra. You're talking about the ability of – nation states to still be able to impose sanctions on each other.
1: That's right. right. That's right. And and it's just, I mean, in the mindset of the engineers, it might not be front of mind. It's just not an issue. Whereas, for other parts of government, that is everything. And that is a way that states project power, maintain power. And I think that if Libra takes off and becomes very popular, it would be a very, very different world in terms of finance economies, control of your economy.
0: Well, it's fascinating because we do talk a bit on this podcast about the idea of economic warfare, uh, states using tools of of economics to try and coerce or persuade each other. And one of the main ways that they can do that, and particularly one of the main ways that the U S has been able to do that because the U S dollar is so powerful is of course, through sanctions, um, and we see that playing out right now with sanctions on Iran and North Korea being in the in the headlines. Chris, on the details of Libra, it's not pegged to the US dollar, is it? It's pegged to a, a basket of global currencies. So, do you think if if you were a regulator in the US right now, um, you'd be, you know, you'd be concerned about this from a geopolitical power perspective?
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, it's it is it will be terra incognita. I mean, I, I would imagine at first when it rolls out, it um, it might take some time before there's a, there's a real sort of mass adoption of it, but once that adoption happens it 's going to be a world where the the financial controls of one country are not the final word and where money is flowing and then on top of that you 're not going to be able to see where this this wealth is going across borders and so it just looks like uh, it looks like this is you know after what we 've seen with the network data that is social media and social media disinformation we 're going to move into a world where you, you can see the same sort of malicious activity but this you know in the realm of financial transactions.
0: And potentially a failure of imagination, because it's easy to think that Libra is just a kind of a flash in the pan, it's a, it's just a small thing. But of course, once it starts, if it does get off the ground, there's scope, as you say, for it to build off those network effects and really spread. I think last count, Facebook has about two point seven billion users across all of its platforms, so Instagram, WhatsApp. So that's a pretty big starting base, potentially, for <laughs> Libra coin.
1: Well, and compared to an estimated, I think, 30 million people that use cryptocurrency today, so that if you have just a, a share of that 2.7 billion, it, it's going to be a, a different world. It, it very much will be. So, I, And this is something that I don't think that central banks realize that you know, if Libra is successful, it's going to return the world of finance to something that we would have seen maybe in the 19th century or before. You'd have competing scripts You'd have competing currencies. You wouldn't have necessarily the awareness of where all these currencies are going. Certain currencies will have would have more power in certain places. Um, uh, and it's a new world. It'll well, be a new I, one.
2: I think the interesting thing about sort of the, the separation between um, Facebook subsidiary Calibra, which will be the digital wallet, um, which will hold LibraCoin. Um, there may be other third party wallets that come along in the future, but at the moment, it's as far as I'm aware, the only third party wallet, the, the only um, digital wallet, rather, that will be able to use LibraCoin. The separation between that, which Facebook completely controls, and the Libra Association, which is sort of this um, governing body that Facebook has created to to control the the monetary policy of Libra, essentially if this did get off the ground, it would effectively remove control of monetary policy away from central banks, at least, at least in some countries, if it was sort of popular enough in those areas. And that's a huge change. And it would move the control of monetary policy into the hands of these unaccountable – well, uh, these, these democratically unaccountable multinational corporations. Which motivated
0: is, by profit, not necessarily things like national security or yeah. – democracy. You know. and I, I
2: think I think a lot would depend on what kind of markets Libra is successful in first. Um, like I sort of suspect the. The, the area where Libra is likely to be the most successful to begin with, and I think you can see this in Facebook's marketing when they talk about sort of um, reduced fees on international transactions especially, I think um, it's remittances are probably the, the most likely initial market for this. And that gives them a foot in the door to a lot of developing countries. Um, and then if, if Libra were to become successful and get off the ground, those developing countries both are possibly likely to have slightly laxer regulations um, on control of digital currency. So Facebook would face less less regulatory hurdles in getting into those markets. Um, But also those developing countries are possibly at greater risk from sort of financial turbulence as a result of Libra countries that have sort of unstable currencies could be further destabilized if a huge amount of wealth flows out of those currencies and into Libra.
1: That's right and, and that's how the when Libra is launched it's going to be something between Y2K and worse than the global financial crisis depending on how it plays out. I mean the the, the monetary policy of these countries the fact that Libra is going to basically be this de facto sovereign currency that is used in these, in these different countries is going to present new challenges for the way that the, the international financial world Navigates the you know the turbulence and and when when there is a crisis, it's not clear if that Libra Association is going to be responsive. My, my understanding is that they are going to create and destroy uh, Libra coins depending on the demand. So that's going to be their function of, of monetary policy change. But that again is terra incognita. It's I mean, it, it, do, are the people in charge of this going to be? Are they going to be you know, skillful enough to to be able to read the markets and? Read the demand for for Libra, and that again is another area that we're not we're not certain of.
2: And just coming sorry, just coming down from the the geopolitical level as well on the I think it has implications on the domestic level in terms of taxation, whether or not um, it has an impact on the amount of tax that governments are able to collect from their from their citizens if they're keep if their citizens are keeping a lot of their wealth in Libra. And there's also sort of the issue of you know, I've been very skeptical of, of Facebook trying to, to clothe this in the, the language of altruism, partly because what they're offering to do for the, the, the quote-unquote unbanked populations is they're offering to take the savings of people who can't access traditional financial systems and invest those savings in the traditional financial system and then keep the interest, right? So they're effectively, we've got a situation which you may have some of the world's most rich and powerful multinational corporations profiting off the savings of some of the world's most vulnerable people, um, which is... Pretty, pretty bad.
1: I See, on a, on a, yeah, but on a whiteboard, it looks like it, it looks like it makes sense. It's mm. not. I mean, there's that's the thing where the 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 um, awareness of the political ramifications and the the long term sort of challenges that this is going to set up. It's just not clear that they're there. Uh, you know, the awareness within the Libra Association and within uh, Facebook. Um, and so this is something that, and as you say, with monetary policy, taxation, and even um, the way that it's set up, the way that I understand, Libra will require people to identify themselves through the local authorities and then they can join. But again, for, for um, anti-money laundering and know your client requirements, it, it's, it's scant. I mean, uh, you know, if these countries, especially developing nations, if they can't control these identities or can't control the people uh, who are, are signing up and, and keep keep watch over who is actually signing up for this, the prospect for disorder and for mischief and for terror financing are or, or also a sort of um, new forms of um, disinformation mixed with a financial element uh, is something that people just aren't thinking about. It.
2: Look, I— I'm so so on, on the the idea that the sort of the AML KYC side of Libra will actually be any weaker than um, sort of than AML KYC is for <laughs> certainly for a, like a, a lot of um, certainly offshore financial jurisdictions at the moment, particularly because uh, Calibra actually says that they will be using Facebook data to prevent fraud. Um, so I actually think sort of uh, I think the level of effort required to fake an entire Facebook profile is substantially higher than it it takes to go to somewhere like Bermuda or the Caymans. Um. But then doesn't (laughs) that
1: raise the issue that uh, uh, the way consumer data is going to be used uh, yes. Privacy issues. Yes, then. absolutely. So that if you're if you're using Calibra, then can you assume that Facebook is mining your data to figure out who you are based on your? behavior? I think that'd be a
0: pretty safe assumption, knowing right. what we know about Facebook. <laughs> so then, it, so then it's
1: yeah. a whole other animal again. Yeah. Because so yeah, it, it's all these things that I think even when you look at their their uh, perspectives, there's just areas that have not you know that it makes sense from a from an engineered perspective, but again, the real life application, the devil's going to be in the details, and there's uh, there's enough gray areas that makes you makes you well, I mean, they out. have
0: set themselves a year to negotiate with regulators. And the optimist in me hopes that kind of regulators will have a once bitten, twice shy approach. They've seen that Facebook's unregulated nature that enabled a lot of really bad outcomes from disinformation, not just in the US, but also in our region as well. Uh, and, and maybe there is increased skepticism about this notion of technology being an unmitigated good all the time. But what I do like, Chris, is your idea of this, there's this whiteboard somewhere in Facebook HQ where they're John down what sounds like a good engineering idea, but it's missing a lot of other aspects. Now, we don't know what was on Facebook's whiteboard, but we do know what was on Mark Zuckerberg's uh, personal notes that he took into uh, the Congress when he testified in the wake of the 2016 Russia uh, Facebook interference, and one of the things he had written on his notes uh, was you know if asked about antitrust, mention China competition. The <laughs> idea here being in Facebook's uh, messaging and communications campaign that they want to make the case to the US government that if the US government takes a hard regulatory approach to Facebook, if they try and break them up, if they try and go too hard on privacy, then really America is just gifting technology competition to China what um, I start with you Elise what do you make of the kind of viability of that argument
2: from Facebook do they have a point Sorry, just to, just to clarify are you sort of asking about like Facebook's competition with WeChat or you're asking about like Facebook's like so Facebook's
0: competition as a general utility against any China America takes a hard regulatory approach to its tech sector and starts to protect things like privacy, then is it just ceding the terrain to China whose companies aren't concerned with things like privacy, aren't concerned with things like even stability or probity or anti-money laundering and are going to move ahead and if they're effective and good products, people will use them and China will
2: economically be advantaged. I think that's a pretty weak argument from Facebook. Um, I also don't buy into the argument that we should lower our standards in order to compete when we're not totally sure what we're competing for or what the value is in winning it. Um, So I I think that's a a fairly weak stance. I feel like like, um, some lawyers sort of put their heads together and said, Mark, mention China as many times as possible. So we've got the technologists not getting
0: the security. We've got the lawyers not really uh, understanding the geopolitics. Chris, obviously... Financial technology and economic superiority are key to national power. And they've underwritten America's preeminence in the international system for 70 years. So America certainly needs to get ahead of the fintech game and needs to work with its companies in some serious way, I think, to make sure that it's ahead of the curve here. Is this a good example of that happening, or, or what are we, what could be done better?
1: Oh, I mean, I, I would think to go back to your earlier question that this is something that, that Facebook could sell to the government, particularly the Trump administration, to say now's the time we need to be out there in these markets uh, because there is that co- correlation between markets, trade, and and political power. So that's a way that they could sell it and. Uh, And I think that, you know, the thing that strikes me about Facebook and the way that they've, you know, rolling this out at this time is this is only a few years after the debacle of the 2016 election. So you have to think that at some level, Facebook feels like they've done most, you know, they've done a lot of what they can. And now it's time to move on to the next big challenge, which they, you know, having more power than some countries uh, have decided is going to be fintech. It's going to be uh, cryptocurrency and, and making it sort of a mass market Product for people to use, so I, I think for them, again, they're in, uh, you know, in the in the Silicon Valley ideology. This is about creating new things, and the rest of the world follows along. Now, there have been some there have been some hiccups in the past couple of years, but it's they're sort of still focused on that. They want to change the world, and they want to change it in, in a way that is advantageous to to their vision, and you know, that suits their vision.
2: And I, I think from the U.S. perspective, we were talking about how this could, if it, if it was successful, shift control over monetary policy globally um, from from the hands of largely democratically elected governments to unelected multinational corporations, if you look at the members of the Libra Association, most of them, they are multinationals, but they are US companies. So, you know, MasterCard, Visa, um, Andreessen Horowitz, which is the big uh, venture capital investor. Um, these are US-based companies. And so, there would be an advantage, you assume, to the US to being the one that regulates the companies that set the monetary policy for much of the world,
1: but then the the, the democratic legitimacy of it, though, is the other issue. Yeah, in terms absolutely. Of, I'm not saying it's a good. No, thing. <laughs> no. And, and, and people forget too. PayPal is one of those companies. PayPal was co-founded by Peter Thiel. Mm. The original intention of PayPal was to replace the U.S. dollar. And you think, well, what's the point of an American company trying to do this? This is the libertarian mindset of Silicon Valley. It's not. It's it's not something that I that a lot of regulators fully appreciate. And if you understand it, you can understand why these companies can tolerate the sort of disruption. That they're creating, and in some ways, they might see this disruption as a positive thing. Yes, there was that you know, twenty sixteen debacle. Yes, there are these you know elections in these countries that are you know we can't really assure that they're you know that they have full integrity. But this is a small price to pay for this bigger vision that we're we're promoting.
0: So I think the focus on ideology is so important and. Not all of the cryptocurrencies that we have are Silicon Valley inventions, but I would say all of them are very ideology driven. So Bitcoin, for instance, the um, Satoshi white paper that created that, we don't even still know who Satoshi is, right? Is a mysterious yeah, a- figure, could be a, a government, could be a group of people, we don't know. But that document, um, which was full of technical standards, was also in my mind a profoundly political document. It came out in 2008. So again, if we think about global context, that's around the time of the global financial crisis, when in a sense, people started to lose trust that America could handle its own financial system. And then the technologists, motivated by an ideological sense that we don't need trust, we don't need central institutions for uh, finance, we just need the power of cryptography, um, bought for Bitcoin. So ideology seems to me to be a kind of a persistent feature in this space, right?
1: Yeah, and it's a very distinctive feature. And for me, it's very curious because I think, as we were talking before, some of the people that feel strongest about cryptocurrency are uh, incredibly uh, ideological about it. And they see it as a solution to many ills in the modern world. And that if, it, you know, through the use of this technology in one dramatic act, we can right all of these wrongs. And it's, it's something that is... I, you know, it's quite foreign, but I do believe that it's that it is a huge driver, and it's why when you talk about cryptocurrency, you get people that are that are that are incredibly wedded to certain ideas about that uh, about the, its use and, and its value. Again, I think this is something that's underappreciated because these people wake up in the morning and they think, how can I make this come true? How can I, you know? And with any technology, you have to ask, what problem does it solve? There's there's an academic in the U.S. that has written a, a small book about this, uh, about how a cryptocurrency or Bitcoin is software for right-wing extremism, essentially. And you can see the way that it is used. The alt-right uses it. The, um, you know, far-right groups use it. They use it to get money around that's not seen by authorities. And um, and again, uh, you know, the, the bigger picture, what problem does it solve for society? We live in a society where we have electronic payments. They work pretty well. The central bank sits in the Particularly background. Particularly
0: if you live in Australia, though, I would say, if you've having been living uh, oh, yeah, yeah. in America, <laughs> right, right. they try and not use that <laughs> no, for no, some they... strange reason. But yeah, yeah, so. yeah it's, a,
1: it's a bit old school. <laughs> um, but, but here, I mean, speaking in Australia, mm-hmm. you know, and the, the RBA sits in the background. They're, they're you know, but it, it functions pretty well. So how do we improve upon that? And and what is the purpose of this tool to improve upon that? And then when you look at it, the the in in my estimation, some of the people that would be most uh, that would stand to benefit the most from an adoption of a cryptocurrency and especially a not a, de- a decentralized one would be a, a th- some authoritarian powers that want to avoid sanctions.
2: I I think the beautiful irony of Bitcoin is it's sort of of founded and its proponents sort of espouse this this incredibly libertarian ideology. But if you look at where the majority of Bitcoin miners actually are based, they're based in China. So so you've got this beautiful irony of this sort of libertarian dream of a cryptocurrency which is in reality largely controlled by a communist controlled state. I mean, isn't that the (laughs) internet too? A libertarian
0: dream that it would democratise information. Cryptocurrency was supposed to democratise the um, financial system, but ultimately both in many ways can be and have been co-opted by authoritarian regimes. So in China, we've got the great firewall, we've got censorship, we've got propaganda being distributed via the internet, and maybe also a desire to insert itself more into controlling
2: cryptocurrency. Yeah, I, th- I think the reality of technology is that it doesn't solve social problems. And so when we come online, we bring all of our social problems with us. It's like it's a, it's a new capability. It's not a new sort of moral regime or a new way of doing things in, in the case of cryptocurrency or in the case of the internet. Or in the case in the future of artificial intelligence, it's just layering capabilities on top of basic human drives. Um, so it's sort of it's neither a positive nor a negative. One thing, too, that I, I just come keep coming back to
0: is this idea of what it's actually like to live in a world where all payments are digital, whether that is via digital payment systems we already have in Australia, you know, the Combank NetBank app, or whether it is cryptocurrency. The the human part of me is kind of scared by that world because suddenly it's not just things like my location and my social media posts that are available to someone to read and understand, but it's also every transaction that I ever make. I mean, does there have to come a point where we push, this sounds very much like a Luddite speaking, but does there have to come a point where we push back or we create barriers to prevent all of this data being created about us and even if we don't, does that have some type of chilling effect about how as we we as humans start behaving, even if we just know that people might be watching, even if they're not?
2: I mean, personally, I, I am a big fan of cash, <laughs> to be honest. I, I think it would be... Um I, th- I find it sort of alarming, I guess, that there are sort of more and more places that actually won't accept cash, even though it's legal tender. There's um, a great restaurant I went to in Canberra the other night that has signs up that says, no cash,
0: credit yeah, only, which I thought was a great reversion, because normally back, back in the day, a lot of yeah. places would say,
2: cash yeah, only. Yeah. But now, it's, don't bring your cash here. We don't even know what to do with that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I find that a little bit concerning. Like, I think, I think um, you know, there's nothing, obviously, there's nothing wrong with electronic payments, and I also use those. But I, I think you should have a choice that, that we should... And one of the things that we can do sort of – you were sort of asking whether we need to have kind of regulation to to control this. Um, And, I mean, we we could consider whether or not we should regulate that businesses have to accept cash because it is legal tender. Um, But I think also just as ordinary citizens, we can occasionally push back by that and say, no, actually, I am going to pay with cash and keep showing businesses that that the demand is there. People do want to pay cash sometimes.
1: I mean, it does. You know, as everything becomes digitized, this is another area where, you know, it probably we probably are approaching a point where people are going to have to have a, a, a discussion about our our individual freedoms and our privacy through our money. And if our money becomes just one more tool that allows some organization to data mine us and turn us into instrumentalize us into you know some spec on a spreadsheet somewhere, then then yeah, that probably is a conversation to have. I know, I think it's in San Francisco they just passed legislation. Uh, forcing uh businesses to accept cash because oh, really? they had this two-tiered uh system where it's not a system but economy where you have the you know the middle class and upper middle class have you know it's all in plastic but then people that are sort of you know in service industry jobs uh undocumented people that don't have access to this, they were trying to pay in cash and they, w- they were being turned wow. away that's just on the on the you know uh, on the outer fringes of this conversation but it's happening so i think it's it's something that we'll probably all you know, we'll and also, I think
2: just from like a risk management perspective, you have got to think about availability. So, for example, if something were to happen, hypothetically, something were to happen, and all of the digital systems were to go down, and nobody had any cash on them, we're all in trouble. Mm. <laughs> and so, like, for,
0: for like, for but I mean, we've been in trouble to that extent for a long time. I mean, most people have held their money in banks, right? And yeah, the, and what. Money you have in a bank is often a function of ones and zeros in a spreadsheet. Not
2: many of us have stacks of cash under our mattress. So. I, I'm, I'm sort of thinking in, in terms of like if there was an outage of even three or four hours and you had no money, that is an issue. <laughs> that is true. I think and that that has yeah. happened quite recently. I think a couple. It was it was it last year. Was it one of the one of the big major banks went down for a few hours and people who were with that bank couldn't buy oh, yeah. anything.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no. It's. I mean, it is something. I mean, you know, it, the more that our cash becomes just data online, the more our hash, our cash becomes basically hackable or deniable in well, a way and- that. Yeah, and a it, and cash, exploitable.
0: It. I think there's an yeah. interesting national security I mean, we're talking about privacy and democracy, but there's a national security lens here too. I mean, America blocked um, Ant Financial, which is um, Alibaba, from buying MoneyGram, one of America's top digital payments companies last year. Um, it was a deal that would have netted a couple of um, billion dollars um, on the grounds, on national security grounds, on the grounds that we don't want a Chinese company to have access to sensitive financial data about Americans. Um, Which, to round out the conversation, I suppose, brings me back to another issue that pops up from time to time on this pod, which is this technology war between China and the US and the notion that in some sense we're seeing a decoupling, a decoupling of the information environment and maybe of the financial system. And what we were talking about before is... Maybe the US has its Libra coin or some other type of digital payment system, but what we're seeing authoritarian countries doing is increasingly actually investing in cryptocurrency themselves. Reading the tea leaves here, what do you both think is the trajectory here? Is, is it inevitable that we're going to have countries running different financial systems? And if so, how do smaller countries, whether Australia or, even, or other players in our region, how do we choose sides in that world?
2: When you say, say running different financial systems, do you mean in a way that's different from the current different financial systems they have?
0: Running systems that are a lot more locked off, with, that aren't- Sort of a, mutually incompatible. Mutually incompatible or indeed with a less of a degree of the interdependence that we see today. I mean, the US currency is still predominant and it still wields a lot of power and everyone's economic system is still incredibly interlinked. But do you see a future where we might be running separate systems that don't really speak to each other?
1: I I could envision a a world where your, your currency says something, makes a political statement essentially. So there might be some of that. So in Australia, uh, Australia continues to deal a lot with U.S. dollars for things because it's sending a statement about the the alliance. Um, But there's, you know, in Central Asia, I imagine that would be a highly contested area where the Belt and Road initiative is trying to, you know, is also an effort to try to spread Chinese networks, including payment networks eventually, uh, if they're not already there. And, And then something like, you know, than something like Libra or other systems or their own sovereign currency. Um, I know, I've read that in Venezuela at one point, the Russians came in and they Try to set up the Petro. They helped. There was Russian minds behind the, the Venezuelan cryptocurrency, and, and that was sort of a nation-state experiment. I don't think it's gone particularly well, but you can see how countries are thinking in these ways. And you know, a long-standing grievance for for Russia and Iran is that they're the subject of these mm-hmm. the subject to these sanctions. Anything that gives more flexibility, and this is where I think that there is this slight overlay with the with the cryptocurrency. Uh, ideology, some of that is is very anti-state, and when you get into the anti-state, it's very easy for a foreign state to, to sort of piggyback on that. And make it an anti-American. Nefarious uses. I mean, and look at the case of WikiLeaks and Assange. It's sort of the same. Just imagine that in the world of the crypto space. So. So
2: I don't isn't. know. I think I, I think I have um, a, a bizarre sort of faith in the ability of money to get where it wants to go. Um, so I think I think much as the governments in these sort of various countries might be tempted to to try to go down that path of like cutting themselves off from the rest of the global financial system, I think the commercial pressures, the economic impacts of that would be so great. Um, I'm not saying it would be impossible, but certainly it would be incredibly painful. And I don't think they'd necessarily want to go down that route. Um, so I, I sort of see, like, like we sort of talk about the um, the decoupling between the U.S. and China, for example. I think that's a really significant overstatement of what's happening. I think there's some, like, there's a bit of a bit of fraying around the edges. But if there's you less at, coupling, but not complete decoupling, yeah, there, there, there's still an incredible level of integration at virtually all levels of the U.S. and Chinese economy.
0: Look, I think we could take this conversation on all day, but unfortunately, that's pretty much all that we have time for. Um, The key takeaways for me, though, is just how much ideology seems to underpin this, whether that's the ideology of the technologists using their whiteboards to create these systems, or the ideology of governments who are using currencies as a political statement, or attempting to use the financial system to amplify their power in some way. That seems to me to be the narrative thread um, going through all of this, but... Hey, that's just what I thought. Um, Our listeners can join the conversation as well by uh, tweeting to us uh, at Apps Policy Forum or heading online to our Facebook group. After we've been talking about Facebook a lot on this uh, this podcast, you might want to interact with the Policy Forum pod Facebook group or even email us, podcast at policyforum.net. Thank you both for such a fascinating conversation and I'm looking forward to having another very soon as more and more uh, is revealed about the fintech revolution we seem to be part of.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Thank you.